Oh, hey, again. Listen, uh, I have a horrible confession to make. Oh, no. What is it? Listen, I, I, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot, but I've, I've got to face the truth. I have been mispronouncing your name in the podcast. What do you mean? Well, I've been saying Negan, but it's really pronounced Negan. You know, like it's in Gone Baby Gone. It's not a big deal. I mean, both work just fine. It's no big deal. No, no, I won't accept your attempt at easing my humiliation and shame. Uh, okay, well, listen, uh, I could do the same. And how about this? I'll mispronounce your name. How about Danelet? Uh, whoa, whoa, wait just a minute here. I don't think we no, need to. No, no, this to... is perfect. <laughs> I can call you Dane from now on, and it'll be part of our shtick. Hey, Dane, how you doing, Dane? No, no, man, let's not go there, please. I can even call you the Great Dane. It's time for Negon and the Great Dane podcast. What do you think? <sighs> the Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents... In partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Negan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Negan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Hey everybody, hey Negan. I mean, hey Nagan. I mean, I can't even remember what it is. Oh, now. you'll get yeah. it one of these days. Of these it is days. another language, after all. Yeah, it is. It is another language. How you doing? Good. I'm been an exciting week. Yeah. Well, so tell me all the different ways your life has changed since you've become a a, a, a famous podcaster. Well, people have started uh, identifying me in the streets, chanting my name. <laughs> uh, I had people show up at my house with a horse. I had people. <laughs> You know, I was at the mall, and people just started make a circle around me, started clapping in unison. I was nothing. Actually, nothing has happened this week. Okay, uh, I'm I'm afraid that it wasn't a, the huge splash that we had hoped. Well, I had I had some interesting reactions. Uh, I mean, the first thing I should say is to those people who took the time to listen to the first episode. Thank God. And you know what? It actually <laughs> you know, did pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I mean, at 2,000 downloads and which is... I wasn't going to do the number because like there's somebody out there with a real podcast who's going to be going, oh, 2,000. Well, I mean, you know? for a first with very little fanfare other than us just tweeting it out a whole bunch and the paper pushing it out. I mean, we are regional, but we, uh, I think it's pretty big and I think our reach has gotten pretty big and it's only up from here. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, th- I thought it was interesting, like... We, I got a pretty good reaction from readers. I got quite a few emails uh, from readers. Uh, um, most were supportive. Uh, one guy who, whose name I'm not going to mention told me that, uh, you know, that the name of the podcast was frickin' racist. I'm not actually softening the, the word. Like, he didn't use the real F sharp. He said frickin', frickin' racist. And that's the last time that my dad will be emailing. Me. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know what? Uh, it's it's a fun name, and I think you know it's intended to create reaction, and uh, and I hope that people think of it. You know, I got I got an email from someone in Europe who listened to it, and uh, you know she was someone who I knew way back when I was a teenager, hadn't heard from her in forever, but saw it on my social media, listened to it, and said it was nice to hear my voice, but also nice to catch up on what's happening, uh, you know, on this side of the pond. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, it obviously speaks to the power of the medium, right? Like we're, we're limitless now. (laughs) Um, But I do want to say, I do want to pass on one 
shout out to a reader named Lydia Heshka. Uh, and she didn't share with me her husband's name, but she did share that they're both 80 years old. And anyways, not only did she send me a Lone Ranger joke, which I won't really go into, but she sent me a link to a video and a whole bunch of history uh, about Glenn Campbell, a uh, famous country and Western uh, singer, songwriter, and amazing guitar player, and, and sent me a link to a, a, a YouTube video of uh, uh, Glenn Campbell playing uh, the William Tell Overture with an orchestra. And honestly, it is one of the, you know, it is one of the most impressive bits of guitar work that I've ever seen in my life. And so Lydia, hey, respect <laughs> for, for sending that out. And I hope, hope you're listening to the second episode so you can hear the shout out. But now this was supposed to be a podcast about politics. So what, what's caught your eye recently? Uh, political stories. You know, I think there's three things really worth talking about since we last talked and, uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, last week was uh, released later in the week, but important nonetheless is the liberal economic statement, which does, I think, three really interesting things. Uh, there's lots of the good stuff in there. You know, these are these sort of, um, we are in a, in a minority government. Uh, the NDP is a big part of the liberal uh, supply and supply agreement. And so you're going to see a lot of things that are, NDP friendly in this statement. So you see a lot of forgiveness of student loans. You see a lot of commitment to uh, issues around immigration. But the two things that I think were really important to note is that uh, on top of the fact that it's dire, it's talking about a recession coming, um, it, it gives a kind of support to truckers that was unexpected. Hmm. It, gave, it gave a, uh, a number of areas of thinking about uh, 26.3 million over five years towards uh, issues around uh, compliance within the trucking industry. And I think that's kind of a tip of the hat to the ways in which the Liberals are trying to reach across the aisle. Uh, and then there's the other areas around consultation for cryptocurrency, yeah, which has really opened up a whole Pandora's box around the issue. And then, of course, uh, the last thing that people are always talking about is around infrastructure. And, and that's the way governments spend their way out of inflationary crises. Yep. is around uh, trying to create uh, jobs and money into the economy, but at the same time, not too much, because you don't want to uh, continue to have the Bank of Canada raise the interest rate. Yeah, you know, the the inflation um, and its connection to governments and government budget deficits, is it's going to be a fascinating story from from now through budget season early next year and into the spring. So... Um, I think most people understand when uh, things cost more money, there's more sales tax generated from things. And along with inflation, you get uh, a, you know a corresponding rise in wages, which means income tax is is riding high as well. So you know really, uh, and I've had quiet conversations with uh, you know people that are connected to various levels of government and finance departments, and they're like, uh, like publicly, public facing. Oh, inflation! Oh my God, inflation's so horrible. Ah, cost of living. And then behind the scenes, they're like, Oh my God, we're rolling in it. Like governments are making so much money right now. Uh, own source revenues are going crazy. And, uh, you know, I mean, there isn't really anything government can do to curb inflation 
other than central bank policy and and interest rates, and that hasn't worked very well so far. But, you know, it's important to to understand, like, um, I suppose it is a positive outcome, is that it restores balance to to government treasury. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that that makes the concerns they have insincere, but, you know, they can see both sides of the equation. And, yeah. and there's such an issue around the labor force right now, shortage of labor, but then this kind of gap that I guess we just have to ride our wave through where small businesses and organizations, I mean, there's a big announcement this this week in the city where uh, the Lions Club is sharing, is selling their humongous seniors complex and it will likely be purchased by private owners. And uh, that's a story that I'm working on right now uh, because it'll impact hundreds and hundreds of low-income seniors that will be uh, faced with radical increase in, in their cost of living or go out on the streets. And I think mm-hmm. we've got a crisis on our hands. And a lot of this has created, you know, the tr- things trying to balance itself coming out of the pandemic. Didn't you think the um, the references in, in Christian Freeland's um uh, uh, economic statement to cryptocurrency and truckers was also, you know, kind of a not so subtle middle finger to Pierre Polivare. I mean, you know, like it, he he was talking about cryptocurrency for reasons that still escape me during the leadership convention uh, leadership campaign. But I mean, you know, like it, he is it, he is kind He's- of you know so you know truckers and and cryptocurrency. Um, I could almost hear, like, if you listened really carefully, you could hear the sound of, like, you know, hands slapping foreheads in the in the Conservative Party headquarters in Ottawa because the Liberals don't really have to deliver on any of those things. It, but if they're talking points for the Liberals now, then it, it makes it takes some emphasis out of what Pierre Polivare is saying. Although, pivot, he's not really saying much of anything to anybody. No, there's is he? a. I think one of the most interesting things happened uh, this week where uh, in one of those rare moments, I mean, it's it's well known and all of my friends in, in Ottawa complain about this all the time. In fact, this is sort of the, on power and politics, this is the thing, the kind of ongoing joke in the newsroom that Pierre Polyev never gives interviews and he never speaks to the Ottawa press gallery. And this is uh, tantamount to performing murder in Ottawa. Like this is <laughs> this is like the most egregious thing you could possibly do is not talk to reporters in the center and locus of Canada's government. And here he is uh, refusing to do stand-ups, refusing to do uh, press conferences. But then he gave a press conference in Vancouver. Um, typical just inflation tags. He did it in a supermarket, I think. Uh, where he was, you know, he, his famous thing is he was always talking about the cost of breakfast and the cost of the goods and <laughs> peanut butter and so on. And so, uh, and is, is there a Palestine kitchen table in there somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> and, and this reporter, I think it was a CPAC reporter, uh, turned to him, or it was actually, I think maybe even CBC Vancouver, I'm not sure, but they turned to him and said, you know, why don't you give interviews? Like, why is it that you don't want to give interviews? And he then he sharply said, oh, I'm giving an interview right now. <laughs> And then, and then he said, uh, but they said, well, why don't you give it interviews in Ottawa? And he said, well, I don't speak to the Ottawa media. Uh, Canada's bigger than that. And then he said something really interesting. And I want to make a quasi challenge. I want to, you know, call out Pierre Polyev on this one. Um, he said, I speak to the multicultural media. I, and, and, and I sat back and I went, well, who is that? And who are we talking about there? Uh, because as a member of the multicultural media, I like to think of myself, 
Um, Fair play. I, I don't know anyone in, in, uh, amongst us, uh, when we go to the multicultural meetings, this doesn't often come up. Uh, that Pierre Polyev is in the National uh, Conference of Multicultural (laughs) Journalists. (laughs) And so I'd like to see, you know, where is he, where is he speaking to these multicultural media folks? Um, And would he be willing to speak to me? And, you know, right here at the podcast, right down the street in a supermarket of his choosing, wherever he'd like to, um, I would be very happy to uh, give an interview or, or ask for an interview. Because I think that, you know, as the member of the opposition, you have an obligation to not just speak in the House of Commons and give a bunch of memes and catchy phrases, but, you know, every day you should be speaking on what it is that you're planning to do or what is it that you're thinking to do. And then you have a lot of things to answer to as well, like around the support of the convoy, for example, when we've got the hearings in Ottawa still taking place and so on. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a column just recently. Uh, It will be out before the podcast drops, Uh, but basically about the... Uh, Progressive Conservative Party of Manitoba, the party and the PC government, and how like how they strangle communications and engagement with the media, and it, it's basically what I've tried to do is show how their inability to provide a simple explanation to a fairly simple story ends up providing two days of negative reporting uh, on the party, and in, in this particular instance, it was uh, they decided to cancel a fundraising dinner. And uh, for November 18th, and uh, when uh, Canadian press inquired, they said, uh, yeah, there's scheduling conflicts, uh, nothing to see here, move on. Well, I mean, that's the worst thing you can say to a journalist, right? So we ran the story, a lot of people ran the story. There's political scientists quoted in the story saying, oh, I don't know, this could be the tip of a bigger iceberg. I mean, you know, they can't organize a two-car parade, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it, in the end, it was just, it, it was... You know, with the new leader coming in late last year, Heather Stephenson, there was a transition period at the PC party headquarters and the people who were planning events for 2022 did not look at the calendar. Uh, November 18th is the gala dinner in AGM for the Manitoba Heavy Construction Association. And if you're a a Manitoba PC, you're going to be at that gala because that's big networking. Manitoba Trucking Association has a big gala that night. And, uh, and then the big one, which is, you know, and I always tell people like there's certain things you should never try to compete with. So don't hold a fundraising meeting within 48 hours of the Grey Cup. Yeah. I mean, big. <laughs> Cause you're, you're now you're, you're a big fan. You've been to Grey Cups. You're a big fan. So the game's on Sunday. When do you go? When do you leave for the game? Uh, usually Friday. Or earlier. Even. Uh, yeah. Thursday, Wednesday. I yeah. mean, this year, Friday, because I have a funeral, but but basically yeah. I would have left probably Thursday. Yeah, so that would have been uh, Heather Stephenson and 150 non-football fans having dinner on the Friday night. So anyways, it's not like a huge story. There is a, an actual viable explanation, but by not giving the explanation, like, and this is to, to you know, the current Conservative Party leader's approach, you know, the less you say, the more trouble you get. Uh, you know, that, that's, I mean, obviously we're, um, you know, not objective about that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so gauntlets dropped. Okay. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to take that clip of you challenging the conservative, uh, leader to an interview. I'm going to send it to his, uh, flack. Oh, I'm sure tomorrow. Well received. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm going to demand, 
a response, and then I'm going to remind him that... From the representative yeah, of the multicultural that media. That I am not a member of the multicultural media, but I'm a good friend with someone who is. <laughs> oh, that's, not, that's sure to yeah. win you over many. Uh, you know, the last story I wanted to talk about was uh, just sort of like, a, 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 once again, a reminder that um, people speaking up and getting involved works. Uh, Ontario, we mm. were in the middle of taping our podcast last week, was in this middle of a, a precedent-making strike where all of the education workers, these are librarians, these are uh, educational assistants, not many teachers, but, yeah, yeah. but you know, custodians. Mm. And so all those who really make the schools work, you know, like I, kudos to teachers, but they would be really nowhere without custodians and librarians and the administrative staff. And uh, I'm a former teacher. I know this. You know, they're the ones who make the schools run. And these are people who are making minimum wage. They're the ones who are often cut. Their hours are put in the worst possible times in the schedule. So the most mistreated, and there they were, uh, shutting down the schools in Ontario for just a measly few bucks. There was these numbers thrown around of 20 30% pay increase. But really, they're only making twenty five, twenty nine thousand. 29000 So yeah. really, we're talking about two, $3,000, uh, a very minimal increase. Uh, when it came to their pay and they went out on the streets and everybody said Doug Ford was going to keep them out as long as possible. And what happened on Monday morning, boom, he rescinded his uh, law, the notwithstanding clause law that he introduced, which was the second time that he'd introduced it. But then one of the only times in Canadian history you can enter into the provinces can enter a law that basically Mm -hmm. says, uh, human rights legislation, employment standards, federal government can't intervene. Charter of rights. Yeah. It's it's the Charter of Rights. And so so just a big reminder, I think, to everybody that when uh when you get involved, when you mm-hmm. uh take action, when you vote, when you participate, when you listen to podcasts, mm-hmm. that it matters. Absolutely. <laughs> that was my last yeah. I'm yeah, and I so I'm gonna I'm gonna take that clip and I'm gonna mass email it to the sixty three percent of Winnipeggers who didn't vote in the last election. How's that? I'm going to send it out mass email. Uh, this is a leading voice in the multicultural media calling you out. On <laughs> okay. So uh, future interview this week, we're really fortunate that Mark Chipman, co-owner of the Winnipeg Jets and True North Sports and Entertainment, and also, uh, you know, a, uh, a leading voice now for an emergency level response to poverty and addictions and mental health problems in the downtown population. So we're going to listen to that interview right now, and we'll be back to talk U.S. midterms. Mark Chipman, welcome to the Negon and Lone Ranger podcast. Love the name of the podcast (laughs) and uh, honored to be here. You know, opinions vary on the name, so we really appreciate that. So, yeah. No, and uh, the graphic for it, equally cool. (laughs) You know, we're here today to talk about a few things, but, uh, you know, we're just real honored that you're here to talk about uh, the recent press conference that you had uh, with the Community Downtown Partnership. It's a coalition of businesses, government coming together to commit to uh, the unhomed population downtown, but then also around safety, around how do we create safe spaces in the downtown area. I think we're all, we all know that Winnipeg has a, a serious issue around poverty. It mostly in, impacts Indigenous peoples. Uh, there's a hundred reasons why that would be, but what do you think it is that is now that brings you out? I mean, you're not known as being a particularly public individual, so what brings you out now to deal with this in this time here now? Well, that 
particular uh, press conference was uh, organized by the province to announce their um, funding for, for what we refer to as the DCSP, which is the second tranche of funding that they've provided. Um, I was asked to participate in it and um, well, was happy to do so. We've, we've spent a lot of time on this project over the past several years, and I, I won't bore you with all of the background on it, but it, uh, it honestly goes back to about 2014 when we first started to, um, I guess, decide to uh, try and understand, um, you know, what, what was happening and why, and, and uh, um, it, it's led me down a number of, of paths, and uh, one of them, I guess, would be, would have been the creation of, of the, the DCSP. It was uh, almost, uh, I'm going to say, a, a bit of a door prize for a, 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 you know, a bigger objective that we had, but I'm really grateful that the province saw the value in it. Um, it, it. You know, it's not something we dreamt up. Um, credit for um, the idea of it was, was a gentleman by the name of uh, Dave DeLal, who's a superintendent at the Winnipeg Police Service, who had seen this model work in Minneapolis through his contact. So we, we, we went down there, a group of us to take a look at it. And it, it seemed to make sense. The city of Minneapolis, very, very similar in size to Winnipeg, you know, excluding all the suburbs. It's very similar. Um, and had, um, you know, a very similar set of issues. So, um, we decided to try and tackle it. And initially it was just ourselves in the city of Winnipeg and but then shortly thereafter, the province came on board, and thankfully, um, so. And just that, to explain yeah. to our listeners, because we got people from all across uh, the country who listen to us, uh, what exactly is the partnership school? Well, th this particular entity, it, its goal is to um, provide a, 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 a service to folks who are, for the most part, suffering from some form of chronic addiction and or mental health uh, circumstance. Um, there is a, a very specific set of skills uh, that are required to, um, you know, to build the level of trust so that you can engage with people that are uh, struggling um, in those circumstances. Uh, I, it, it is, it's almost thought of as sort of a fourth layer of service behind the traditional um, police, fire, and paramedic that, that aren't necessarily um, set up to, to, to um, engage, right? Um, not that they're not capable of, but it's not sort of their, you know, they're, they're the, the prime focus of what they do. So our folks we have about 60 in total, uh, 54, 55 of which are on the street in pairs, are trained in, um, in well, some of them are paramedically trained, so we can do some medical intervention, but they're really trained in, um, in, in how to engage people that are, are, have been traumatized um, and or are, you know, I mean, currently or uh, are, are or previously are in a state of severe trauma. And it's a, it's a unique set of skills. And, um, and that's what we do. Uh, and, and, you know, and then get those folks to the best, to the extent we can, to the resources they need. Um, whatever those may be, navigate for those, for those uh, folks 
um, to, to, right, to the right resources. So the, I have to say, again, full disclosure, so my partner works downtown, Kitty Corner, to uh, the True North, uh, or to the arena, uh, Bell, MTS Place now. And, um, you know, she, uh, she was deeply affected when she read the story, and deeply affected when she read uh, the quote that we had from you. I think we're past the point we can just look away and hope that someone is going to solve this for us and solve this for the people who are struggling the most. You know, she works at the library, which really has become an extension of the, the community self par uh, safety partnership, but also the whole network of social services that are offered. And that's the way the people who work there feel mm -hmm. is that like they're down uh, doing library work, but they're also down doing, you know, front counseling, line, front line you know, work, yeah. Uh, you know, she, she literally last week was helping, uh, somebody, uh, apply for social assistance using the computers at the, at the library. Um, uh, obviously no one investment, no one building, no one enterprise downtown is, you know, provides a solution, but how do you measure, like, what are the metrics that you're using to measure the impact of what you're trying to do here? What's reasonable? Um, because I think, you know, a lot of people uh, who don't come downtown have a certain image. What, you know, how, how would you counter that image and tell people, can you point to progress? Yeah, it would be a combination of really some empirical data that, we committed to collecting uh, from day one and a lot of anecdotal uh, uh, evidence as well. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things I've learned that if you're, if you're looking for uh, public investment or philanthropic investment, you know, the extent to which you can collect data and show, like demonstrate outcomes, really enhances your ability to uh, sustain those Funding. So we committed to and, and developed an app on day one, and uh, and so our you know our, our team is out there and, and and we record every interaction basically. We you know we collect uh, the names and and the locations and there's a and and we follow the pathway that we take uh, these folks through. Um, so we're able to document and show government you know or or whoever would like to see you know. What are the where where are we taking these folks and what are the outcomes? One of the things we do, you raised you know the point that your your wife uh, helps someone get on a social assistance. We that's one of the services that we provide. We have what what's called our core team. They're a navigation team. Some so many of the people that are struggling um, in the city don't have ID, right? You don't have ID. You can't apply for uh, income assistance. Um, so that's one of the things we do, and we can demonstrate, you know, um, that outcome once you get that person their ID and then actually successfully get them the the, the, the financial support they're entitled to. Um, it, so it would be things like that that we that we measure, and um, you know, uh, uh, unfortunately, there's more, you know, the, there's more heartbreak that we measure than we than success right now. I, I think. Um, it's uh, so many folks are um, that that our our team encounters are are really in uh, in a, a, a tough tough spot, and whether it's 
it's the, the you know an untreated addiction or a very or undiagnosed and very severe mental illness um it, it's um it's it's proven to be very difficult work for our, for our folks and um and i you know i the day after that press conference just coincidentally i was walking from where i parked my car to the office and i i witnessed uh, this young woman who works for us uh, manage uh a situation in a um it's it was it's kind of hard to describe but believe like it it um it was really really impactful and really moving to see uh how much this young woman cared about what she was doing and i i don't i haven't don't know what the outcome of that a particular interaction was but i had a sense that um that individual um trusted us and uh and felt that they were you know um they were in good hands well you know there's something interesting happening in the city and uh it's been happening for a while now and i think it's uh it You've been involved in various different ways with the movement of community patrols, which has been happening in the city for a number of years, actually going back to the 1980s with mm -hmm. the Bear Clan mm -hmm. and with the Mama Bear Clan, with a group that I'm a part of. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've been doing that for four to five years now. Uh, these, you know, grassroots citizens doing frontline work in what you classify or what you're talking about as kind of a fourth layer of emergency services in the city that is... Um, really on a shoestring for the most part. I mean, I, it, and you know, I don't think a lot of people also know that during the pandemic, you quietly, and perhaps you may not like that I'm going to talk about this, but that you were involved with helping uh, open up the warming center, doing clothing drives at the games uh, to be able to help those, uh, you know, even just to, because I remember giving out these, uh, the, all this jet gear to people downtown when we were doing uh, Mama Bear Clan work. Um, why now? What, what do you think is happening within the city? You know, the pandemic, I think, has been very indicative of, a, of an exponential spike in trauma in the downtown. We've seen a spike in needle use, for example. Um, why now? What is it that's brought you to take a real frontline position for this partnership in this community patrol now? Well, I don't know that it, I could say that it, why now? Because honestly, Nigana, like it, it started for me back in, in 2014 where, you know, working downtown, I just really started to see a change. And, uh, you know, there, there, there was one particular um, recurring incident that, that was just happening right outside on a, on a park bench right outside the the window of my office and this same soul um you know was um i i came to understand was buying a bottle of cooking sherry every morning at uh at the at the uh the liquor store uh hargrave and uh he and a couple of his buddies would consume it and and uh it often resulted in a you know, a man, a nine one one nine one one call. So you got fire trucks and ambulances and police descending, and it, and it, like I said, it was recurring, and so it, it just, you, it, it's impossible to sort of just, you know, disregard that. So I, I, I'm curious by nature, and I think that's what led me into 
trying to understand, um, you know, why so many people were suffering. And, and since that time that, you know, it's, there's been an, an exponential growth of it r- regrettably. And as you said, like in your intro, like the reasons for this, the underlying causes of this are so complex, uh, in, and, and, and in some ways very simple. I mean, people, we're talking about people who have been, um, you know, the, the victims of, um, of, uh, just in human, uh, treatment and, and the resulting trauma from that for generations, we're living with that. Right. And, and, um, um, and it's, I would say this, it's not unique to our city. I was asked to go out and speak to a group in Edmonton, uh, a couple months ago, um, you know, about, about our little project and how it might work there. And I was really shocked, uh, to, to see the, the, uh, the magnitude of the same, very, very same set of issues in Edmonton. I wasn't aware and, um, and it's, it's akin to ours. There, you know, a, a lot of those folks are, are, you know, uh, of indigenous ethnicity. They come from communities they've been displaced from. They come to a large city looking for, um, you know, community and services and, and they, you know, they've, they've undergone the same trauma, frankly, I, I believe. And, and so now that's no consolation, right? Like it doesn't, didn't make me feel better to come back to, well, Edmonton's got the exact same or even bigger problem in terms of scale. It doesn't make you feel better at all. It, nor does a, a walk down East Hastings in Vancouver. Like it's mind blowing. Right. Uh, it's actually or, how similar it is and then how caring is the corrective. It's caring is the, is the step towards a process of, of solution. Right. Um, agreed. So it's not unique to us, but as I said, it's our community. You know, everybody who lives here deserves to be safe, deserves to be treated with dignity and, and have a place to put, you know, their head at night. And, um, we got a long way to go. We got on any given night, you got 1500 at least depends on which numbers you, you, you look at, but you know, you got at least 1500 people who don't have a place, uh, with a roof over them. Um, it's, it's, it's 2022, man. Like that's not acceptable. It's just not acceptable. So it, 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 the one thing that really was sort of a shot to the gut for me reading that story was uh, how soon that story appeared after the civic election campaign. And I promise, mostly, I'm not trying to get you to talk about any candidate or party or politician in particular. But we just went through a campaign where like the, the conversation about what to do about downtown is distilled into largely more police patrols, more boots on the street. I mean, and I don't think I did do a review of the the top four or five candidates. Uh, I no one pledged more support to the the downtown community safety um, uh, program. Uh, nobody uh, uh, seemed to make a commitment to any similar kind of program. Um, you know, it, we did it, elections do distill these things down into a mm-hmm. conversation about law enforcement. So I'm just going to ask you about the tenor and tone and content of the campaign. W- were you uh, disappointed or maybe not disappointed? Did you find anything hopeful in the campaign? No, I don't think I was disappointed. I, I would say that, um, you know, um, 
I, I, I spoke to a couple of candidates, um, uh, you know, prior to election day, I, I, you know, there were, they had expressed to me their desire to, or, or you know, some understanding of what we're doing. I, I would say like, uh, mayor Gillingham absolutely, um, you know, was supportive of what we've been doing for quite some time, came out on some walks with us long before he announced his um, intention to run for mayor. So I, I think all of those candidates, whether or not they made it clear in their, you know, um, in their platforms, I, I have to believe, I know Glenn would have, would have taken an interest. Uh, he's, you know, he's got a strong passion for downtown. Scott, I just mentioned, um, you know, um, look, I think, man, politics is a, it's a, I, it's a tricky, uh, world. And, and I admire, I honestly, I really admire those who have the, the courage and the, um, you know, uh, the ability to do that. So I, 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 I tend not to be critical. Um, and I, and I, I, but I did come away from our presser that I, I think our mayor is, he understands these issues, uh, the complexity of them, and I believe his heart is invested in these issues. So I'm hopeful, and I'm, I was also really pleased, honestly, that uh, that that he and the premier were in the same room at the same time. I think that's something that our community has um, um, suffered from over the past uh, however many years. So that's a good sign. I think also there's a there's a general misunderstanding that uh, often puts as a binary uh, business and social services. And as a result, it, people tend to think that one is uh, not involved with the other. And talking about, you know, in the, in the room of having business and government, in the room talking about poverty and homelessness and addictions, mental health and trauma, uh, these are some things that I think the Indigenous community has really sought for a long time and looking for leadership in that area. Uh, so perhaps this is also, like I've said also about Winnipeg and has been frequently a theme in our podcast, which is that there's things that are happening in Winnipeg that I think are templates for many, many things in the country, um, particularly because this is such a specific Indigenous issue, mm -hmm. whether we want to talk, name it that or not, uh, the racism, the policies, the things that you're talking about, the inhumane treatment really have a lot to do with Canada's treatment of Indigenous peoples, the theft of the land, and, and so on, which has resulted in the outcomes of uh, right now in the downtown core, you have people making small modular houses just to have people to sleep at night in warming centres and so on. Um, I know you've been involved in the uh, this misunderstanding for a long time. People have often misunderstood the development of the True North Square around affordable housing, which you corrected, and, and there is grants for mm -hmm. people to get affordable housing. But what do you think it's, uh, or what do you see as the business community and the Indigenous community happening in the city? And do you see con more connections taking place like this is an example of, the, of a partnership? Yeah, I do. I really do. I, I like I would point to, um, for example, uh, and this would just be one, but the, the, the Business Council of Manitoba, it's call it the 100 largest companies in the province, many, many years ago established um, a, a program to support post-secondary education for Indigenous people. And it's really worked, right? I, I, the, talk about outcomes. And, and, but what, beyond the outcomes, 
right? And and the celebration that we have every year when, when and, and and the emotion that comes with listening to these stories of people that have benefited from and you know many of which have gone back to school after years of trying of raising their kids and so forth. Beyond that, like I have long ago sensed a real, um, a, a real desire, I, I guess, you know, amongst my closest friends in the business community to be a part of making things better, right? Not just your, you know, garden variety, you know, uh, uh, you know, charitable endeavors. I, I've, I've sensed that amongst a lot of people. I think the frustration comes from just not knowing how, right? You want to engage, but how? And, uh, and, but, and, and so often we rely upon government to solve these problems for us. That hasn't worked because governments come and go, right? And, 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 and those who work in government come and go. And it's just, you know, cabinets get shuffled. It's tough to, to just place the responsibility, you know, on the steps at Broadway or City Hall or, you know, or Parliament Hill. It just so, there's, there's, I think what I'm trying to say is, I think people understand there's a much bigger role for, you know, it doesn't have to be just business, but the community um, to, to engage and, to try and be a part of a greater good. I, I really believe that. And, but as I said, the tricky part is because people ask me like, how, how, what can I do? How can I get involved? And, you know, uh, I don't have all the answers, but um, sometimes I just start by saying coach a hockey team, right? Uh, do, do something like, you know, um, it involves uh, a lot of listening. Eh? I yeah. mean, I mean, I think there's, there is a lot of answers uh, in many, you know, you have, Kevin Chief works for you, for example, and, and others who have worked for you. Uh, but when you get into those situations, I think listening is one of the things that I've always, you know, experienced a lot with your organization and the business community in Winnipeg. Uh, by listening has resulted in the very first Indigenous chair of the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, you know, very quite aggressive business-centered programs uh, that are designed on dealing with listening to what uh, community organizations want to do and then really following that lead. Yeah, I th another great example of that would be Sky Bridges running the Winnipeg Foundation, right? Like it, that, that um, just another really good signal of, you know, towards, you know, working at this together as opposed to, one side just trying to, you know, provide all the solutions for the other and, and so forth. Um, and there's lots of examples like that. But like Nigan, like, y you know, I would say if I, if I could, if anybody asked me, you know, on, on how to go about any of this, it is to listen first, it's to ask and to listen. Like if we relied upon you. Um, you know, when we had to deal with that, that knucklehead who wanted to wear a headdress, right? Like, uh, it, it's not hard if you ask. So I've, I've been very fortunate to be able to have people like yourself and like Kevin, you know, guide me through this over the past many years. Um, and, um, I think if you approach this with that, 
you know, with that mindset of let's uh, let's understand first before we start, you know, uh, throwing solutions around. That's what a partnership looks like. And that's actually what treaty was supposed to be about, because exactly. certainly, you know, there's those in the indigenous world who um, benefit a great deal by also listening and listening in terms of, you know, the key right now, I think, and it is not an easy situation to be a business person in Winnipeg. I mean, uh, coming out of the pandemic, we've got a, a, a real dire situation for many of, the, many of those businesses that have been closed for two years. Here we are now trying to, you're, you're running an entertainment company. Uh, the question will really be, do some of these initiatives continue in a, in a, situ, in a community where, uh, where you're struggling even to put on hockey games, put on concerts? Uh, what's it like to be a business person downtown? And then how important is it to stay the course and stay committed to these initiatives when it is really a losing economy at the moment? Yeah, it is at the moment. But I, the one thing I think I've always been able to take some comfort in is that, you know, we're a resilient uh, community. Winnipeg has never enjoyed the the real highs, you know, that Alberta or Calgary and Edmonton have. But we it's been as steady as she goes forever. And when we, you know, uh, encounter real hardship, and, and I tried to make uh, that, that this point at that at that press conference, like we we always seem to rally and, and, or find a way to help one another. And, um, you know, sometimes it takes a natural disaster, like a flood or something, but I mean, that's why I think that's what we're dealing with right now. I think we got a full blown crisis on our hands and it, it merits, uh, the attention of everyone and that resolve that we have. It's, it's another opportunity for us to show one another, you know, that we can, we can make things better. So there's no, I mean, I, I don't sense any quit in anybody. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm as saddened as anybody to see a lot of the, of, of the merchants in downtown who weren't able to survive the pandemic. I wish more people were back downtown working. Uh, there's still too many empty office buildings. I'd probably get myself in trouble if I go on in too much detail on that. But, um, you know, we need people back down here that, that, that those little businesses um, relied upon. And, uh, you know, we'll look, we do what we do. Um, we can attract people down to watch hockey games and concerts. And, um, that's not, what's going to bring the city, the, the downtown back, right? We, we need, we need to, we need to get people back down working. And, you know, there has been an increase of, of people living downtown, which is a good trend. We need more people living downtown. We meet, need more amenities for people living downtown, like a, you know, a grocery store, a real grocery store. Um, no disrespect to Bobby Matola and, 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 uh, you know, uh, he's, that's a phenomenal operation, but, um, you know, that's what we need. We got to get people back and get the vibrancy back. And, and the rest of this is a much bigger play, to be honest with you. Like, you know, what we're doing at the DCSP is not the panacea for all that ails us. We need, we, okay. We need a central authority on this once and for all. Like we have a secretariat, right, that is responsible for seniors for, with good reason. We need that same type of authority. I don't know exactly where it needs to reside, but if you look at the city of Houston, which is the only city that's really made any real significant change, they centralized the authority. They, they named it for what it was, and, and it was led by a woman, their mayor, who said, not acceptable. 
pulled the social service agencies together and they reduced homelessness by 60%. We need to do that here. We need a central authority on this. Somebody who wakes up every morning with their team and that is all they're thinking about. So you've now mainlined into political will. And again, I'm going to try and continue to maintain my promise not to maneuver you into a commentary about any particular politician or, or party, although I'm, it's killing me. So I want you to know that I'm keeping my promise, but it's hard. <laughs> we, we, have a, we have a certain, uh, in our first episode, we covered the duties the Lone Ranger must follow. <laughs> and one is to act honorably. At all times. <laughs> and speak in perfect grammatical language. Um, but, uh, you know, and it's, and, and I, I, I'm also going to say, like, I don't want to be the glass half empty guy. But, uh, like, what you're talking about, the, the central authority responding to a crisis like it's a crisis. Okay, so th this is the great, in my opinion, the great affliction of our time. Climate change is a crisis. Mm -hmm. And it's fractured. Mm -hmm. Our response is fractured. Healthcare system right now is in crisis. Yes. And we've got uh, provincial and federal ministers of health throw, you know, snapping uh uh, you know, paper clips at each other in, in a, at a, a meeting. Um, the, uh, I've often thought that local government is, is like this perfect little incubator for what you're talking about. But this is where I'm really concerned. And I'll connect the dots with a couple of things here. Um, people not going to theater downtown, people not going to see live music, fewer people going to see hockey, um, fewer people reading and consuming news. Uh, 37% turnout in the civic election and with no disrespect to Mayor Gillingham uh, at all, but I'm, he's, he'll be on this podcast soon and we'll ask him this question. 9% of all registered voters uh, elected him as mayor of the city, which is an enormous challenge, but a burden as well. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So let, we've talked mechanisms here, but where's the engagement come from? Yeah, you're doing your part, and the other people that stood up with you are doing their part. But I, I, I'm afraid I do not see at the federal, provincial, and local government, I don't see anybody saying, okay, we're going to do whatever it takes. We're going to make the resources available. We're not treating the crisis like a crisis. I, I would agree with that, um, but I'm, I, I, I feel like um, that may be coming. I, I really do. I I, I, as I said, the, the, just, you know, the fact that you got the mayor and the premier aligned on this um, is a positive step. Like anything, you know, like momentum's everything, right? You, we, I feel like we've got a little bit of momentum right now um, and we can't squander it. So we're, we're going to press on, on the, on the, on the bigger fix. We just have to, um, you know, because what we, otherwise what we do and and, I, and frankly, I told the government this when they um, when they first um, uh, funded us, and 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 I can't tell you how grateful I I, I was for that uh, and and for this new tranche. But I said, look, we're just gonna this is just gonna expose the gaps. We're just gonna show you where the gaps are. And this is this is not um, intended to be a criticism. There's a whole bunch of organizations doing really good work where people are really deeply committed to their cause. But there's almost this inherent, uh, you know, inability to, to, 
to work collectively. I don't know if it's because of, you know, funding cycles get shorter and shorter and, and organizations feel like they're competing with one another for funding, whether it's philanthropy or community or, or public money. But um, there's only way, one way out of this, and that's when everybody is aligned, right? And um, it's, it's not that complicated. It, it really isn't. The resources to fix this really reside at the province, right? Because we're really talking, this is a health issue. You know, to a lesser, much lesser extent, it's a it's a justice issue. Uh, you know, and what I mean by that is there are people, you know, that are preying on the most vulnerable people in our community that ought not to be able to do that as easily as they are right now, right? So that that angers me. And and having started my life um, as a prosecutor, there's a part of my mind that you know always drifts over there. But that's not the heart of the problem. It's a health issue. Health resides with our with our you know, it's administered by the provincial government. It's an, you know, we have a ministry of, 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 uh, of mental health and addiction. We, those, those resources reside inside the province. They've got to be organized, I believe, in a way that we haven't done before to, to tackle this with a central authority. That's what I think. I mean, housing too. I mean, I just wanted to housing, add. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like, because, the, you know, so so much about uh, the unhomed or the, the unhoused have to do with uh, mental health. I mean, the fact that, you know, my, people that look like me, people with, uh, you know, Indigenous peoples from communities, they're coming most oftentimes from a traumatic past. And that has to be dealt with before housing. Housing right. is not the solution. It is mental health. But housing is the quick second solution because that creates longevity and consistency. So absolutely, like it's all provincial, isn't it? I mean, it's but but yeah, I I believe it is. I mean, there's there's a there's a federal responsibility here in in so far as housing is concerned, I believe, but it's not just housing. It you you can't. There's all kinds of failed examples where you just you know you find a, a an apartment for somebody, but if if you don't provide the supports that that individual yeah, the, needs, the home, the home the, yeah. exactly. And there's some really cool examples actually that have. Uh, that have spawned here locally. I, I, the, the Pollard family have, you know, done a remarkable uh, thing. They've, you know, they, they, they've got, I, I think, 45 beds. But it's not, you know, it, it's not just 45 beds. All of the wraparound services that those folks need are there in the building, right? And that's what it, that's what it takes to see. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up on welfare in Manitoba housing. I know 100% that it's about it's about the people around you and it's about all of the different things that support you in that, you know, the fact that you can share childcare, that you can share food, that you can share medicines when you need to. I can't tell you how crucial that is and explains really why people choose tents right. over, uh, you know, a bed in a shelter. You know what? Uh, talk about a, uh, an eye-opening learning experience uh, for me personally. This time last year, Mitch Bourbonnier, who, you know, uh, is a big part of the DCSP, uncharacteristically, uh, you know, he's usually so upbeat. He was really down one day. And, and when I asked why, he, he, he saw a real crisis coming last winter. And, and he's not a meteorologist. Uh, it, you know, nobody knew how bad it actually could be. But he saw it in terms of the number, the increase in encampments and the number of people living in bus shelters. And so that's why we you know, uh, mobilized uh, the, the building at 190 Disraeli, which is now 
the warming center. Yeah, yeah it's and Mitch Bourbonier, longtime activist involved with uh, helping set up the Bear Clan way back in the day, and and uh, just now he's working to do community partnerships downtown. Yeah, he's a he's a force of nature. Um, is unbelievable. We actually went to high school at the same time, and he's a dear friend. And uh, but he saw it coming, so that's why we we put that together. It's it's now known as uh, Nadina Waymac, which is um, translates into our relatives. I'm told, and yep. and we've got 125 people that call that place their permanent home right now. 125. Yeah, we serviced it last night. Yeah. Uh, we, at Mama Bear Clown, we went and delivered yeah. sandwiches and took care. Well, you know, we come near the end of our journey. We've ridden down the trail. And uh, Lone Ranger, how'd we do? Uh, first of all, I've encouraged him to lay off the, the Lone Ranger metaphors. But <laughs> at, th at this point, uh, it's like eating potato chips. He just won't let it go. Um, no, and, we, need a, uh, we need a Jets prediction. That's what I want. I want yeah. That's really what people are tuning yeah. in for. The season started yeah. out great. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, like there, I I read today about the uh, the the uh, is, is it a petition or something that the that the team set up for themselves for accountability to yeah. each other. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you know the teams on the all on the same page at the moment. Yeah, I think I think they are. I think Rick's done a a really fine job. Notwithstanding, he's only coached two games or three <laughs> he had now. COVID I guess. for a while, yeah. Yeah, he got hit hard, and uh, but he's he's. He's a pro. He's, you know, he uh, he really is. He's one of those guys. He just every time you talk to him, you talk about anything, you just come away feeling better about yourself. He's like a human whisperer, you know. Like he just, <laughs> you could be talking about any, like traffic, weather, and whatever, and and you just feel better after you. And you really, you really have a thing for the poet head coaches, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I do. Poet, <laughs> I do. You know, like yeah. they they have to be. There has to be a little poetic flair there to me. There, there was a, a thing I watched last night. I, I don't think people know Rick Bonus has been through great teams and not so great teams. I mean, he was there during the lowest season in NHL history when the, with the Senators. Yes. Right? They won 10 games the yes. whole season. Yes. And then he's also been with Dallas, you know, been to the top of the mountain. Yeah. So, I mean, it, we've, we have somebody who has a great deal of experience and certainly it's shown evidence in the team, but you're not going to make a prediction. How many wins? Um, we got you on recorded. Well, I, I think, I think I couldn't tell you the exact number of wins, but I, uh, I feel like our team's, good enough to be a playoff team. I really do. It was four to the last five years. We had a bit of a stumble last year um, with some unexpected things happening to us. But I, I think we're, we're uh, I'll be surprised if, if we're, we're not in the playoffs. And, and once you get in, as we, you know, as we've seen, you, you know, you can, anything can, anything can happen. happen. We got a, we got one of the best goalies in the world and, and that's where it begins. Right. And, and, uh, and we're very fortunate. Yeah. To, to have uh, to have Connor. Well, you know, both in, because I think we we both feel the need to talk more hockey, and there are other problems in the world that we haven't even touched on. So I'm happy to announce this is the first of an eight part series with Mark <laughs> Chipman, where we will we're we're going to work through most of the world's biggest problems. We're not promising any solutions. There's no Stanley Cups being promised, but there's so much more to say. Because, you know, you're a pretty interesting guy, and we appreciate the work you're doing downtown. So thank you, and thank you for doing this. Yeah, miigwech. Thanks. My pleasure, guys. My name's Leah Gazan, and I'm the MP for Winnipeg Centre. And this is The Storytellers. Today I've been asked to tell a story about what it's like to be a woman in politics and how... 
I handle myself in there. Well, I have to tell you, I don't think it's any secret that, you know, we need more women elected uh, to the House of Commons. And that predominantly, particularly in some parties, uh, it's like a dude fest in the House of Commons. I often refer to the House of Commons as a dude fest, where you see the most grotesque, uh, misogynistic uh, behavior, mansplaining. In fact, sometimes I don't even know how I'm going to get out of my office without a mansplain. What would my pretty little head do? And so I tend to try and not to engage in it because, quite frankly, it's really negative and it's toxic. And I do do that most of the time until recently uh, when I was sitting in the House of Commons and one of my colleagues, every time she would answer, you would hear a group of men from the Conservative Party en masse shushing her like, shh. Now, the first time it happened, I questioned what is going on that is so violent. Now, the second time, once again, somebody asked her a question. Shh. I said, this is disgusting. This is totally, totally disgusting. Now, recently I spoke to a colleague about heckling and how it's important not to heckle in the house because it actually eats at your own spirit. So I actually make a point of never engaging in heckling the third time. Shh. Now, by this time, I'm getting really impatient. And so I turn to my seatmate and I say, I'm starting to lose it here. Like, I can't believe this is happening. Why isn't the Speaker of the House intervening? This is so violent. This is so violent. Fourth time. Shh. I, I quietly say to my seatmate next to me, if they do it once again, I'm going to lose it. Sure enough, the fifth time, shh, and out from my gut, I scream, stop with the sexist microaggressions. The whole house went silent, not a shush to be had. I'm not proud of my behavior in the moment, but it sure felt good shutting down that sexist garbage. So a big miigwech and thanks to Leah Gazan. Uh, I don't know if you know this, Dan, but uh, Leah Gazan and I grew up together. Uh, we, our parents were that. her mother and my mother. Uh, her mother was the instructor of my mother. So we actually knew each other for almost 40 years now. So she offered to do the segment and uh, we're very happy that she did. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, for for people who've never had a chance to meet Leah, uh, she she's just one of those people like when you meet, and even if you talk to her, in you know pleasantries for two or three minutes you feel better when when you like there's just such an energy to there's her. nobody who embodies hope more yeah. than leah like she really believes in in people and she really believes in conversation and her story uh about refusing to heckle you know <laughs> refusing to heckle in parliament uh is just ep the epitome of her until that reached that point where she just had to say something and so yeah. uh you know big miigwech to to leah for that but uh, you know, here we are, we're in podcast two and, uh, you know, we're lucky enough that we've arrived and probably we, well, you know, is they always say every U.S. election is the most pivotal in history, but this one seems to be pretty big. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, in our first episode, we, we talked to former Manitoba Premier and former Canadian Ambassador to the United States, Gary Dewar, who offered us uh, a number of scenarios 
on how the midterms uh, might turn out. And, you know, he, the first thing he said is it's too close to, to call any of this. He did think that the Republicans were going to regain control of the House of Representatives. Um, as we talk right now, uh, there's nothing final, but that certainly seems to be the way the House is moving. Uh, it, it, it looks as if they're going to regain control. The Senate, once again, has come down to, like you talk about the United States as a deeply divided nation. Well, the Senate certainly embodies that. 48-48 uh, with one seat uh, in Georgia going, going to a runoff. Yeah, well, no, if you see the, I mean, the, the numbers are pretty amazing because what what if you watch any of the networks, they'll they'll tell you quickly like how many have turned over, and the Senate uh, only one seat in the entire Senate has turned over, and it's Fetterman uh, in, yeah, in, um, Pennsylvania. in Pennsylvania. And you that know, was a, yeah, that was a gain it, for the Democrats. And, yeah. and everybody thought that that he was out of it. I mean, he performed so badly. Uh, in the debate, and we talked about that with Gary Dewar, mm -hmm. uh, and there was a really question whether he would be fit for office. And uh, uh, I spent a day kind of researching um, John Fetterman, John, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I only hear Fetterman all the time. That's why. No, no, <laughs> but know. you know, I, I went to. Had to it's day like no, but it's no, but it's like The Simpsons. Fetterman. <laughs> <laughs> I, I spent a day yeah. researching just his political career and the ways you know how progressive he is, mm. and then. Yeah, I read this piece about how he remakes politics by the way he dresses. I mean, the guy simply refuses to wear, wear a suit. He wears a hoodie and shorts at basically every announcement. He says he has one suit that he used for his swearing in, uh, uh, and that's it. And this guy is a very interesting figure in U.S. politics because he is so outside the traditional box on the Democrat and the Republican side. Uh, it's interesting that he is the lone wolf difference in this so far midterm election. Yeah. It, you know, it, it's, it is a compelling story and uh, you know, like I, I can, the made for TV movie has got to be coming, you know, like the, the, the Lieutenant governor of uh, Pennsylvania, a state with like remarkably toxic politics, um, you know, where like it, it's a rust belt state, uh, you know, to use Gary Doerr's term, but, you know, and, and uh, you know, Trump, who really has, Donald Trump has no affinity for, you know, uh, for Rust Belt, uh, hardworking, you know, roughneck type people. But, but you know, the, the uh, Trump politics uh, runs deep into that. Yeah, to, 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 to win, to steal a seat from the Republicans in an election running against a, uh, a Trump acolyte. I mean, like it is, it's like a tremendous story and, and that, but that actually feeds into this absolutely amazing, um, you know, uh, narrative where, you know, Joe Biden may lose the Senate, uh, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker are headed to a runoff election. December 6th. Uh, December 6th and, uh, for a Georgia Senate seat and, um, so that's going to knock the libertarian candidate whose name, uh, I deliberately did not learn. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but it, he got like 81,000 votes and yeah, it's going to uh, be tough. Bigger it's than be the margin. Uphill battle yeah. for Warnock. And, and yeah. it, I mean, the, the three biggest stories in this election was number one was Georgia. And it's still a story yeah. that yet to be, yet to be written the final chapter. The second story is how many Trump endorsed candidates Failed. Failed. And and it's funny, if you watch all the coverage, and even on Fox News, which I 
spent spent time watching last night because I like to see. You know, like I actually have trouble watching MSNBC no, news because. But, but, but seriously, it's like it's like watching. You ever watched uh, Jordan Peele's uh, uh, Us? <laughs> like I can only watch it in thirty second. You yeah, know, I, can I, only, I can only like, watch parts. Jump of it in and watch thirty because seconds. It's just so overtly, like it's so overtly yeah. biased, yeah. and and so uh, you know. But I also would say similar things about MSNBC. It's so overtly biased yeah. at times. But um, the. Uh, the story that's really interesting. I mean, who are the ones who may, who lost? Like mean, Lauren Brobart and and all of these major election deny denying candidates. But it's funny that if you watch on Fox as well as CNN and anyone else, uh, people were talking about unfit candidates or candidates that were mediocre. That's interesting. Yeah. That's something that hasn't been discussed. Yeah. And, um, you know, today there was a very interesting conversation on, uh, on power and politics I was watching uh, around the issue of, uh, is that really a kind of statement about Trump, that the unfitness of Trump and the ability of Trump to uh, pull down the party, which he has been seen for so long to lead. And the mm-hmm. this third story, I think, that comes out of this is another Republican story, which is the rise of of uh, DeSantis in Florida. Yeah, you know, and and DeSantis is his own kind of crazy. I mean, like, I I don't, like, I I think if you're, you know, a bleeding heart uh, liberal, uh, and I'm waving my hand in the air right now in that I'm guilty way. So, uh, you know, like, he's he's kind of frightening in his own way. But it's actually, it's like one frightening dude who is locked in a mortal struggle with another frightening dude uh, you know, Trump and DeSantis, DeSantis are just like completely at odds with each other. I think that the, th- that could be, well, for me, I'll, I'll add two important things. So the, the loonies, uh, like the real Trump loonies are out there trying, are still trying to spin voter fraud, uh, stories. But so far, like without a lot of traction, like, you know, it's almost as if it's, yeah, okay, whatever. No, I think people you know. generally thought this election would be, on mass, yeah. candidates who would refuse to accept, but generally that hasn't happened. No, and and so I think that, that that leads very carefully into the second thing, which is that you know Donald Trump was supposed to do his own rally or you know celebration uh, last night about this thunderous red wave, you know, taking back uh, the U.S. Capitol in a less violent way, and. Uh, and it didn't happen, and nobody really cared what Trump well, had to say. And but now, like, but that was the springboard yeah. to twenty twenty. Like, I'm and, back. And he was supposed to have a press conference in exactly a week, uh, one week from today on the fifteenth, that he's announcing a presidential yeah. run. So, like the the result means that he is he's gettable, he's beatable. If you're Ron DeSantis, if you're any... Mike Pence, I, I don't think Mike Pence is... No. He, he, he's come, it's interesting, you can always tell when, when, they're come, when they're beginning to make a run, you'll see them suddenly appear in feature interviews with Anderson Cooper or Oprah Winfrey and or whatever else. And he's out there. And he's st- he just started this yeah. week with feature interviews of, here's my platform, here's my... And I think you know Pence is a real up, up, uphill battle because he's so tied with Trump. Yeah, and uh, he'll need to divorce himself further. Well, if I don't know. Like, I, I think I think when Trump, you know, not so thinly veiled, encouraged people to kill him. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think I think that might have provided a, a little, little well, glimmer but, of, but then of again, space he, between you know, the two. I, of them. I yeah. saw a great quote that uh, you know Republicans really have no reason to complain about this election because 
whether you supported Trump or not, you still in, you still uh, enabled him. Yeah, and you and be you know enable enabling is just as bad as endorsing. Yeah, I think maybe six months ago, it, you know, the question was, would anybody run against Trump? I think that the question now is, how many people are going to run against Trump? And uh, you know, I think that the like the his previously impenetrable hold on the leadership or, you know, and, and certainly just in politically practical terms, the best possible way that the Republicans could capture the White House would have been six months ago would have been Donald Trump. And I think that the midterm results show that that's not true. I, I, I think it's, it's uh, so I think that that is DeSantis and other uh, Republican uh, contenders. They are now emboldened. And, you know, the funny thing about it is, is, Everyone's talking about who's going to run for president as if it's a uh, fait accompli. But, you know, Joe Biden uh, has to be pulling at least some kind of victory from this. But, you know, what Biden predicted was true. And what Democratic lawmakers predicted was true was that abortion would be on the ballot. And that the number of people who came out from exit polls from those kind of questions. I've always I've always heard about this. I've never seen it, mm. by the way. I've never seen exit polls coming out of or somebody standing there with a clipboard saying, you know, what were the most important issues for you? But the exit polls all suggested universally that abortion was the second most important issue after the economy. And it's important to note that, you know, Michigan, California, Vermont, all of these states put women's rights on the ballot. They said that a woman has a right to choose and that this would be the key issue. Uh, and this was something that I think people carried when they went. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting that also people, maybe for one of the first times in my memory anyways, uh, at a U.S. election, uh, looked at their candidate more, at perhaps being sicker or sick and tired of the bipartisanship of, of uh, American politics, you know, because you saw these kind of interesting battles, like I think New York is the one big example, where you saw a tiny red wave in New York, where, you yep. know, New York's a blue state, it's a democratic state, yep. and you saw representatives in various districts all throughout the states just take on democratic incumbents and defeat them. Yep. And I think because there were, not because suddenly New York's turning red, but I think that there was people actually listened to the candidates in those writings. Yeah. I, I mean, overall, and it's probably still too early to tell, but I think that, you know, the sense that the United States was slipping into some form of anarchy, um, that, you know, that it was possible that people that denied the, the um, 2020 election result who wanted to manipulate uh, the rules for voting to uh, disenfranchise millions of Americans and, and frustrate their efforts to vote. Uh, you know, to a certain extent, I think U.S. institutions push back against that and have been remarkably resilient. And, and like, obviously, there will be legal challenges going on for months uh, afterwards. But I, I think, to you know, like the just the fact that like if you look at the websites for the leading U.S. news organizations – um, uh, you know, and yeah, for, for the, that segment of our podcast listening, uh, audience who thinks that we ought to be look, listening to, you know, Fox News and, and its counterparts, like, you know, like it's election fraud or alleged election fraud or attempts to overturn results by alleging election fraud are not yet 
like are not even nearly the top story. And that is so encouraging, right? Like it, it you know, it just like, honestly, you know, I, there's a few American cities I love and uh, I was afraid the results of the midterm meant that, yeah, there's, there's no more Chicago in my future. There's no more Minneapolis, <laughs> yeah. you know, like it's, so anyway. uh, you know, I was watching different races throughout the night, but uh, I happened to be very close with my friend Carrie Miller, who works in my department in Indigenous Studies at the University of Manitoba, and we were texting throughout the night because she particularly watches Wisconsin. And uh, this is a story I'll never hear, but I think it's an important one. Um, you know, the, there was a huge close race between Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes. Uh, people did not expect that to be close. Uh, Mandela Barnes, the Democrat. Uh, throughout the night was keeping within within inches of Ron Johnson uh, and, you know, Wisconsin, heavy red state. In fact, so red uh, that they've declared wars on universities, uh, you know, attacked institutions, public institutions, uh, are radically into defunding and then, you know, upping things like police and so on. And, you know, the, the U.S. Senate race in Wisconsin, no one was really talking about, probably nobody will talk about, uh, because it, but it did come down to 1%. Uh, and Mandela Barnes, black candidate, progressive candidate, but interestingly enough, uh, almost unilaterally won all of the f indigenous vote. And, really? and, and this hmm. indigenous vote is a small percentage. This is, you know, it's in, a, in an election where 1% is the difference. Uh, in Wisconsin, Mandela Barnes won uh, indigenous communities, First Nations, uh, they would call U.S. tribes, uh, in Wisconsin, which are a very significant vote, 3 to 5%. Uh, one almost unilaterally that vote. Hmm. And that was what kept him so close. And I think wow. that's an interesting little feature that uh, you won't often hear in U.S. politics, but it really shows you that in certain states like Arizona, New Mexico, Wisconsin, Michigan, um, in uh, Oklahoma, of course, when yeah. thoroughly Republican, you know, indigenous peoples in Oklahoma having lived there um, are some of the most uh, Republicans around, which might surprise you, but indigenous peoples are thoroughly Republican, also very patriotic, very involved in things like war, um, you know, supporting war and so on in, in the Oklahoma. But, uh, but in Wisconsin, there is a really interesting blue wave amongst Indigenous voters. So uh, the good news about the U.S. midterms is it's the story that keeps on giving. So, <laughs> like, because results will be in question for weeks or even months, uh, we're, you know, who knows? Like, yeah, maybe who, we'll even have Gary Durbin. Who planned yeah. that? Like, I, yeah. like, okay, you know, wasn't it supposed to be years ago when we had hand ballots that, yeah. that and, and somehow hand ballots back in the day, back when I was a kid in the eighties, that hand ballots seem, we seem to get a decision in one night, but now with the internet, with technology, with, you know, when we did the civic election recently, like we literally, my, I put my ballot in a machine and it was counted within yeah. seconds. It's supposed to be better, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I don't think it's the technology that's slowing things down. I think it's the competing mobs of finger pointing militants that, uh, the butterfly ballots. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, yeah. in Arizona, uh, the reason why Arizona is taking so long and Arizona right now, fairly yeah. razor thin, uh, uh Trump backed, uh, uh, the TV anchor, Aaron Kane is in second place. Um, they check every signature. Like, yeah. holy smokes. Like, imagine that job. No, I know. And it's, yeah. But, I, and it's such a, it's such a farce. 
you know, it is such a farce. But again, like, you know, we're going to come back for our first podcast of the year and say, well, everybody, it's great. We finally got the results on the U.S. midterm elections. <laughs> 10 years yeah, from now. That's right. <laughs> well, luckily, our producer, yeah. Adam, yeah. a great guy uh, from the United Kingdom, they really got it right over there. They don't even hold elections and they just keep picking whoever they want. Whichever party wins, they just they don't even go back to the ballot box. <laughs> no, they just yeah, they just have the the MPs. You can see the, him shaking his head right and now. And the lords, the lords get together and they they you know they tut tut and pick a leader. Yes, that no, that's not better. Um, so, anyways, uh, podcast number two in the can. Yay for us! Uh, thanks to mom for downloading it thousands of times. <laughs> Really appreciated that. Uh, huge thanks to all of the, you know, like one thing that's been really a treat is uh, our colleagues at the Free Press. Yeah. And uh, all of our friends, uh, former reporter Alex Paul even reached out to me, who's, you know, long, no longer at the Free Press, but listens intently, loved us, tweeted us out and so yeah. on. And, you know, uh, all of our friends in the Free Press and also in CBC who, you know, where I work and so on, it's just what an honor it is to have our colleagues listen to us. So thanks a lot. Yeah, no, for sure. Although I will say like they, you know, they're journalists and they listen like really too carefully. So like in the, in the Mark Chipman part of the interview, like I, I talked about my partner working in the, in the library system downtown, um, you know, and I'm just, I'm trying to be kind of a hip guy, you know, and I'm using, you know, instead of wife, use partner. And anyways, and and so I had, um, you know, a former free presser email me right away and go, oh my God, Dan, or like, are you and Danielle split up? <laughs> you didn't say wife. Yeah. And I was like, uh, yeah, no, I was just, you know, trying to be with it. The mistake you Lone Ranger do <laughs> is when you try to be hip. You got to just stay traditional, stay who you are, and we'll, we'll be just fine along the journey. Hi-yo. <laughs> Well, podcast two in the can. Okay. Uh, we've got, uh, we've just secured some amazing guests for the upcoming But we're not going to tell you who they we're are. We're not going to tell you who they are. Um, but I can yeah. tell you, we just got an email just two hours ago from a huge national figure. And so what an exciting few podcasts we have coming up. Wayne Gretzky. It's not Wayne Gretzky, okay, but right. I think we should email him. Okay. I think we, yeah, I think, uh, I, I, you know, this is, there's actually a podcast that where the guy, uh, he interviews some really nice people, but he also, uh, tells right off the top all the people who said no. <laughs> so maybe we should do that. Um, uh, thanks to you. Thanks to Adam Glynn. Thanks to CJNU 93.7 FM, Nostalgia Radio, who, uh, you know, basically make all of this make sense. Thanks to you uh, for listening. Hang in there with us. There are good things to come. And I'll see you next week. Miigwech. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.